Sermon number two is quite a bit longer than sermon number one. So open your Bibles now, if you would please, to the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. And we're looking this evening at verses 7 through 10. And when you found that scripture, we're going to read this and then we'll continue with the sermon I began last week, Finally Done with the Devil. So Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. This evening, as I begin this uh, second part of this message, I I think that I maybe in a sense need to offer some apologies to you that uh, are in the service tonight and, and you haven't been through at least a major portion of this study. Uh, Next month, we're coming up on three years that we've been in the book of Revelation. And so there's much material that we've been over, so much that it's impossible for me to try to catch everybody up on where we are. And I want you to know this. as As you go through the pages of the Bible, you're rarely going to come upon an isolated verse that doesn't have something to do with something that's already been said someplace else. Something that comes before it, after it, some other place in the Bible. And as we break into a a part of one chapter, we needn't think that we're going to understand the full meaning of what's being said unless we have read what what comes before and what comes after it. And that's the case when we come here to the seventh verse in Revelation chapter 20. You start here and you see this where it says, and when the thousand years are expired. And you, you have to think, what thousand years is he talking about? And then it says, and, and you read, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And you have to think, if Satan has been in prison, who in the world would ever think of letting him out? Why would you ever release him? And those are questions that are answered when you stick with the verse-by-verse study of the Word. And so we come to the seventh verse, and we're left hanging as to the significance of this, unless we're well aware of what has gone on before. And so thus you have the reason for the apology. I just hate to see anybody wondering, what is that all about? What is he talking about? But most of you do understand that the thousand years here refers to the millennial kingdom. And this amount of time is defined by Satan being in the abyss. The amount of time or the millennial kingdom uh, is measured by the time that Satan is in the abyss. And during that time, Satan is unable to affect what goes on on the earth. Uh, he, He can't tempt men to sin. He can't ravage unbelievers. And he can't make the lives of God's people miserable. And so this 1,000 years is Satan's absence. And during that time, and this is the most important part of that 1,000 years, is that Christ rules the world in that time in perfect peace and prosperity. And so there's perfect justice in every corner of the globe. And whether willingly or unwillingly, every person must bow before Christ and worship him. And so the entire world 
is then bathed in the sunshine of God's providence. And, and, and only then will people see how that every facet of this world's uh, prosperity is owing to the will of God being done. When God's will is done, the world prospers. Now, as you know, there's much to discuss on the subject of the millennial kingdom because we spent weeks and weeks talking about that kingdom. But we arrive here in verse number 7, and there is a change. For, for God's wise purposes, Satan is loose from the abyss. And we're going to talk about those purposes just a little bit later on. And so when Satan is loosed from the abyss, then the millennial kingdom comes to a close. So we have here, first of all, the release of Satan. Satan has been chained in the bottomless pit. Uh, that's the same word as abyss. And although we don't know exactly what's there, what is in the abyss, we, we do know this, that it must be a place of torment. It must be a place of darkness and a place of suffering. And for a creature like Satan that's filled with pride, this is nearly the worst thing that can happen to him. And it's not the worst because the worst is still coming after that. But for, for the time being, that's about the worst that could happen to him. So God puts him there, and God is able to put Satan there without effort. He, he commands, and then a mighty angel comes and grabs hold of Satan and binds him and then puts him in this place where there's impossibility of escape. And there are some people who believe that God and Satan are not only opposites, but they are equal opposites. And that if God is able to bind Satan, then that has to be a tooth and toenail fight. I mean, there has to be fur flying, there have to be cuts and bruises and scrapes, and nobody comes out of a battle like that unscathed. But you can be sure of this, God has no equals. There's nothing that approaches equality with God. Satan exists only for God's purposes. And maybe someday God will explain to us what that's all about, and the Bible says we can't understand everything that God does. It's way beyond our understanding. Maybe he will tell us what it's all about, but at least we know this right now, that God allows Satan to exist and do what he does somehow because that's going to work out for God's greater glory. We also have to understand that Satan is not a redeemable creature, and he's not a changeable creature. He can't be anything other than what he already is. And that is a fascinating part of God's creation and God's revelation. Uh, God has provided redemption for man, but he hasn't provided redemption for angels that fell. And so all of those angels that sinned against God uh, have been confirmed in their rebellion. And so when Satan is released from the abyss, he's not rehabilitated. A thousand years doesn't rehabilitate him. He doesn't come out with gratefulness for his freedom, and he doesn't come out with a promise that he's going to do better and he's going to change his evil ways. And God doesn't let him out because he's fooled into thinking that's, that's, that's what Satan will do. I mean, just as Jesus knew the character of Judas before he chose him, Jesus knew exactly what Judas would do, so God knows exactly what Satan will do. He knows what Satan will do as soon as he's let out of the abyss. So Satan is released, and he comes out breathing like a mad dog. He's angry at his treatment, and he's more determined than ever that he's going to upset God's kingdom and finally overthrow God. And so we see here in verse number 8 that as soon as he is released, that he returns to that old habit of deception. He goes to deceive the world again. So secondly, and we looked at this last week, started on this part of it, the reception of Satan. I mean, the world has been freed from Satan. Satan's tyranny for a thousand years, and so how do you think that they'll receive him when he's let loose? Will the world actually listen to him? 
Well, the rule of Christ has been perfect. There's been financial prosperity. There's been a perfect climate. There's peace between people. Everyone's healthy. Everyone's well-fed. All weapons of war have been changed into farming instruments. And no one alive in the world at this time has ever known anything other than living in God's glorious kingdom. And so what is it that Satan would possibly have to offer uh, that could be better than what God has done in the world? And I think there's several ways that you could answer that, but it really comes down to this. It comes back to the original sin. It comes back to the original fall. What is it that caused man to fall? What is it that caused Satan to fall? And the answer to that question is pride. Pride is what caused Satan to fall. And when Adam and Eve sinned, it was ultimately their pride that did them in. They thought they knew better than God. They thought God was withholding something from them. That surely there's something better for us. And, and Satan tempted them with that. And, and so they disobeyed God. And so I think maybe that's part of the element that we see here. That people have known nothing but the kingdom of God. And yet they think that somehow the world could possibly be better. I mean, we are not actually receiving maximum benefits when God is in control. And so what do they do? We see the reaction of the deceived. They listen and they join in with Satan once again. And so Satan is able to muster a rebellion against God. And we spent quite quite a bit of time dealing with that last week, so I'm not going to go into detail again. But it is such a very critical point of this passage that we do need to review this. There is a great population explosion that takes place over the whole earth during the millennial period. Now, that's because conditions on the earth have changed. There's the eradication of disease. Uh, There's abundance of food. Everything that would hinder people from living long lives today, that's all taken away during the millennial kingdom. And so there's there's an exponential population growth. And there's one thing that's common between all people that are born in the millennium, and that is they're humans. I mean, that's the common bond between everybody there. They're all humans, and so in the human body, they have that same Adamic nature, human nature, that we have today. And the Bible describes that as a sinful nature. And because it's a sinful nature, it's fundamentally hostile towards God. It it cannot submit itself. It will not submit itself to God. Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 8. He says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh that Paul is speaking of there is not flesh like what you have stretched over your bones. It's not skin and bones. He's speaking about the sinful nature of man. And when he talks about the carnal mind, he's talking about our emotions and our will, our thoughts, our reasoning, everything that we are naturally by our birth. All of that is against God and refuses to submit to God. But the flesh can be held in check. I mean, it's possible that you can suppress fleshly desires for a time, but at the first opportunity that the flesh has to break out, when it sees a way out of it, when it comes to a crossroads where it's either choose God or choose sin, we will always choose sin. That's what we are. That's what we are naturally. Uh, These people that are in the millennial kingdom, they're unregenerate people, and they've been living with the desires that are flesh suppressed for all of these years. 
God has been ruling over them. They're forced to obey because God rules with a rod of iron. And as good as that may be for people, and it is good for them, they're incapable of any kind of true love for God. They're incapable of having a true desire to follow God because that is not in the human nature to do. It simply can't be done. And so once again, we can't, we can't agree with anyone who thinks that becoming a Christian is simply a response of human will. The human will is depraved. It's, it's incapable of choosing God. And for that to happen, God has to work in a person's heart first. God, God has a sovereign, secret work that occurs above our comprehension. And then when God has worked in our hearts, and only then do we freely choose to come to Christ. And so here you have these people at the crossroads. They have unregenerate hearts. They have the sinful nature. And when they have a choice, they will not make the right choice. Universally, they make the wrong choice. And that's what we see in verse number 8. And and Satan is able to deceive the nations again. So after 1,000 years of perfect rule, the people want to throw it all off, throw it away, and go their own way. Now, what we have here in this section of Scripture is a, it's a synopsis of what happens every single day in the human heart. This happens all over the world. Here, here we see it in a massive scale all at one time, but the same choices are made every single day by people all over the world. God is refused and Satan is invited in, and it doesn't change unless God sovereignly makes that change. Now, we go on here next and... And here's where we're getting into a new part of the message that we haven't talked about yet. And that's the collection of nations. In verses 7 and 8, it says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now, verse number 8 shows Satan's deception, and that's a worldwide deception. We're not talking about a localized assault here. It's not made up of just a few dissenters that are able to gather a rebellion. This is global resistance, and it comes from every part of the world. East, west, north, south, from, from all quarters of the earth, this rebellion is alive against God. Now, I've done some investigating as to how the different commentators interpret these two terms, Gog and Magog. And the first mention it of Magog that we have in the scriptures is in Genesis chapter 10, and that's in the listing of Noah's descendants. Uh, Magog was the son of Noah's third son, Japheth, so that makes Magog a grandson of Noah. And the descendants of Magog are the people that settled north of the Black Sea. Uh, They were known in, in times past as the Scythians, and today we know them as Russians. And in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, there's a mention, there's mention of an invasion upon Israel that comes from the north, and it comes from Gog and Magog. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically what Gog is, and so most people believe that Gog is the ruler of Magog. Now, identifying that invasion as a prophetic event is somewhat difficult. And there's some who believe that, that it occurs in the middle of the tribulation, Some people think that it happens in this time that we're talking about here at the end of the millennium. And I'm really not going to wade into that debate tonight because there's people on both sides that make good points uh, to identify it as one of those two time periods. But I do want to say this, that in any case, this, this is a larger group than just the Russians. 
I mean, this has to be an army that's, that's uh, larger than one nation because this is not a northern invasion. It's an invasion that comes from all different directions, from all different parts of the world. All of these people join in the rebellion. Now, there's an interesting proposal about this that some, some have said that Satan deceives those that are in parts of the world that are uncivilized. And so these are barbaric types, ones that have never really understood the righteous rule of the king. Uh, They've apparently been living under rocks somewhere, and so Satan brings out this barbaric horde that comes against God and fights against him. J.A. Seiss, lived in the 19th century, wrote this. He said, The allusion to the corners of the earth as the regions whence these rebels come sufficiently indicates that they are among the hindermost peoples and the least advanced and cultured among the millennial nations. It has taken more than a thousand years to develop the civilization uh, that makes the better portions of the present population, and a thousand years even of millennial tutelage could not avail to bring up the darker and more degraded sections to a very exalted height. And among these ruder peoples, Satan finds the plaint materials for a new and last revolt. And then he goes on to refer to Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14, and the people that are mentioned there. And he says that these might be the same people, or one of them might be a type of the other. But he says, in either case, the reference is to peoples lying outside of the more civilized world. And so Seiss believed that since it's taken more than a thousand years to civilize the world currently, and and the world still is not completely civilized, that there's not going to be enough time uh, to bring the entire world up to the millennial standard before Satan is released. And I I would have to seriously doubt that, because with 1,000 years of Christ ruling in a worldwide kingdom, One of the greatest benefits of that has to be the social order. I mean, one of the greatest benefits of Christ ruling has to be a completely new worldwide civilization. So there aren't any backward countries in the millennial kingdom. There are no uncivilized barbaric people in the world. The entire world recognizes the goodness of the great king, Jesus Christ. And so all nations are going to be brought up to the standard that God expects. And so when this rebellion occurs... You're not going to be able to throw this off and say, well, uh, here's the excuse for it. These are uncivilized people. And I think that would completely miss the point. These are refined, upstanding, educated people who despite all of the advantages that God has given, their hearts have not yet been truly turned to God and will not be turned to God. Now, uh, that, that would be the point of this, wouldn't it? I mean, are we going to say that the refined people of the world are more likely to to be naturally disposed to Christ than other people? Well, if you say that, then you destroyed Paul's argument about the equal sinfulness of Jews and Gentiles. I mean, because one group is advantaged by having, as Paul said, the oracles and the traditions and the commandments, does that make one group better than the other? Well, in in Philippians chapter 3, I think Paul makes that very clear uh, that it wouldn't because he says, I was circumcised. And he said, I'm from the right nation. He said, I'm from the right tribe. I'm from the right religious sect. I was the most zealous of my religion. I did my very best to keep the commandments. And then he concluded by saying, I counted all of that as worth, worthless, totally worthless, worse than worthless. He said, I counted it as dung that I might win Christ. And so we're not talking here about civilized world versus uncivilized. And and we're not saying that Satan has better luck with heathens than he does with uh, good religious people. 
The scripture says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And what we have here in Revelation 20 is a graphic demonstration of that truth. Revelation 20. Now, we may not here then be able to identify Gog and Magog specifically, but it's clearly evident that what we're talking about here is a worldwide rebellion. Now, before I move on to the next point then, I want to add that this is a grassroots rebellion. You know, we hear all the time about grassroots movements, and and that means a movement that's not spurred by traditional political powers. A grassroots movement is one that starts on the local level. So why do we say this is a grassroots movement? Well, it is because there is no political power structure in the world except that of Christ. His kingdom has eliminated all other kingdoms. If you remember going back to chapter 17, it told us there that during the tribulation time that the Antichrist solidifies the power of all the kings of the world. And so in in Revelation 17, verses 13 and 14, it says, These have one mind, speaking of all the kings, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So Satan doesn't have any kingdoms to work with. All that he can do is go directly to the people. And evidently, the grass catches fire. And what happens is you have a great big prairie fire, raging prairie fire, and they all have one purpose, and that's rebellion. And how many of them are there? Verse 8 says, they are as the sand of the seashore. And that's the Bible's way of saying, you don't have time to count them all. There are just too many. You can't count them all. Thirdly, we see the destruction of the deceived. Verse number 9, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now, if they're going to attack Christ, where will they go? Well, this is a physical assault, and so there's only one place they can go. They have to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city during the millennial kingdom. That's where Christ rules from. And so that's where they go when they surround the city. Now, there's one author that described that as sheer madness. And uh, we would have to say, yes, that's sheer madness, all right. Anybody that raises a hand against God, that's sheer madness. But it seems like there are a lot of people that are inflicted with mad cow disease or something because this happens all the time. People attack Christ and his kingdom. And if you're a citizen of God's kingdom, you can just count on this. You're going to be attacked in some way or another. And if you're not attacked... In some way, if you don't, if you don't suffer some kind of, some kind of harm or, or, or some kind of problems because you're a Christian, then you don't fit the profile of a real Christian. And if this church doesn't have opposition from the gates of hell, if it's not continually trying to knock us over, then we don't meet a definition of a true church. That's what happens to God's people. Now, I can get discouraged about things that happen. I know that you do as well. Most of my discouragement comes from my own failings. But I look at a scripture like this, and I see once again that God has everything in his control. This is not a rebellion that's unforeseen to God. He released Satan from the prison. And he's not standing back now and saying, what have I done? What a bonehead move. I released the guy. He knows better than that. I like what the scripture teaches us about God's protection. The Bible teaches that God has built a hedge about us. We are hemmed in. Garrisoned is a word that Peter used. In 1 Peter 1 verse 5, he said, Who are kept 
by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And the word kept there means garrisoned. It's just like Elisha told Gehazi. He said, those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And then God opened his eyes, and Gehazi was able to see a mountain that was filled with horses and chariots of fire. So here, their doom comes down to one simple sentence, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. There's no fight. There is no war. There's no hand-to-hand combat. combat. God waits until they're all assembled, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So God knows they're coming. He knows that they're coming to Jerusalem, so he sits back and waits. He waits till they all get into one place, just like he did at Armageddon. Remember what he did there? He waited till all the nations were gathered into that valley. Then he sent the angels to slice and dice, and there was a river of blood that flowed out of that place. Here it's a little bit different. There's no bloodshed. They don't, they don't get the opportunity to fire a shot. There's no bloodshed. Snap of God's fingers, fire comes down and burns them all up, burns every one of them to a crisp. And so that sets up Satan's last hurrah in verse number 10, and we're finally done with the devil. Now, before we get to that part, though, there is one big looming question that's left unanswered here, and that is the intention of God. What did God intend through all of this? Why does he let Satan out of the abyss in the first place? I mean, he has him there. He has him out of the way. Things are going great. So why doesn't he leave it status quo? Why do we need verses 7 through 9? And I think there are three compelling reasons that God let Satan out of the abyss. Now, the first of these we've dealt with already extensively, and that's number one, that God is right about the human heart. God lets him out to let us know that he's right about the human heart. Now, we keep fooling ourselves and thinking that we are evolving into a better society. We think that we're smarter, we're more compassionate. All the world needs is just a little nudge of human kindness. Like, we, we need Rodney King. Why can't we all just get along? That's what we really need. Well, God gives the world that and gives it a whole lot more besides. Every conceivable advantage you could think of. More money, there's more ed- better education, better health, a better environment. Opportunity at real, lasting peace that the world has never seen before, and the world throws it away with just one sidelong glance from Satan. God is right about our hearts, and we are justly condemned because there is no goodness in us, there is no soundness in it. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 1. All sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, Children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should you be stricken any more? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. That scripture was written about Israel after they had received countless blessings of God. They had privileges that no other nation ever had, but in the end, they never had a change of heart. They never had God give them a new heart. And so all that they ever did was just, in the end, wallow in their own corruption. Now, this is not a pretty picture, but this is what Revelation chapter 20 proves. God's always right. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. And even Satan knows us better than we know us. He knows that at the slightest provocation, 
He has men, men eating out of his hand again. Secondly, why does God let him out of the abyss? To show us that God is right about the devil's deception. Another thing that he does is to prove to us Satan's character, that Satan will not change. Everything that Satan says is a lie, and what he tells you is always going to work out badly for you. Every alluring temptation that, that really looks so good for the moment, it's always going to hurt you. And the devil's deceptive enough to make you think that it's going to be fine. He makes you believe that everything's going to be okay. Even in your own history, you know that it's never been okay. And still you believe that it will be. And then the devil's deceptive enough that what you think or what you're sure won't hurt you, or what you're sure will hurt you, I should say, what you know is going to hurt you, you do it anyway. And you're convinced that the future pain is worth the pleasant pleasure, present pleasure. And so God, God shows us also the devil's deceptive enough to make you think that you can stop any time that you want. That you aren't really listening to the devil anyway. You're your own man. You're your own woman. You do what you want to do. And there's the devil pushing the pieces like pieces on a chessboard. He's controlling everything. He's like a puppeteer, moving your legs up and down and back and forth, smacks you on the head, and you say, how did that happen? And then there's some people who have the audacity to say, well, we can't have election and we can't have predestination because that makes us puppets. Get a grip, Pinocchio, and try to figure out why your head is so hard. You are a puppet, you dummy. Satan's the puppeteer, and you're powerless to do anything about that. This is what we learned talking about this uh, this morning in our in our form class, Ephesians 6.12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You have no power in that realm. And God is showing us here that you're never going to resist Satan unless it's by divine power. Do you know how God proved that divine power? How, how did he show us that he could defeat Satan forever? Well, that was when Christ died on the cross and then when he came out of the tomb. See, if there's ever a chance when Satan could have the victory, that that would appear to be it. I mean, the cross looked like Satan's shining moment. Jesus said, it's finished. And Satan said, no, it's not. There's still the tomb. Jesus said, it's finished. All that God requires is finished. And Satan watched him and said, no, it's not. The tomb's coming. And so they sealed that tomb. But the only thing that was really sealed there was the doom of Satan, was the guarantee that Satan would have this final last hurrah. And then thirdly, God let Satan out of the abyss because God is right about real righteousness. Righteousness is not a show that you put on. Righteousness is not because you go to church. And righteousness is not because you have the right clothes and you have the right haircut and you don't go to movies and you don't play poker. That's not what righteousness is. Righteousness is not because you have immersed yourself in a Christian environment. Now, what we're looking at here is people that are living in the kingdom. These are people that came to Jerusalem for worship. They could actually see the king. They could see saints that are ruling with the king. They're as close to holiness as you can get and they practice all the right stuff. Because nobody's allowed to do anything otherwise. But they're not God's people. They're not truly God's people. So why does God let Satan out of the abyss? To show their true colors. To show who they really are. They have plenty of religious activity. They look like they're alive for God. 
but their hearts are black as coal. I mean, their hearts are lost and sinful as ever. And there are people in churches all over the world that are like that. They're no more saved than these people that surround the throne and attack it given half a chance. So God lets Satan out to prove who these people are. He exposes them. And you know, sometimes we get a glimpse of what our brothers and sisters really are sometimes. The ones that we think are really brothers and sisters in Christ, who they really are. The same ones that tear down the ministry the same ones that gossip, the same ones that, that are always complaining against the pulpit, the same ones that always have a gripe about something. See, sometimes the devil just leaks out of that polished facade and God lets us know who they really are. So there's some really good reasons why God lets the devil out of the abyss. But I've saved the last one, the best one for last, and that's number three, the reward of Satan. God let Satan out of the abyss to reward him. A reward for all these thousands of years of defying him, all this time of turning against God, all these times of of trying to hurt God's people, all of the evil that he's done, God gives him his reward. See, the Bible says that for every transgression and obedience, everyone receives a just recompense of reward. Now, let me show you what that reward is, just in case you like rubbing elbows with the devil. Verse number 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So his reward, well, his first reward, he's thrown into the eternal fire. That's how God rewards him. Now, there's too much there for me to cover tonight, and we're going to have the opportunity to talk about all of this much later, talk about hell itself. But this is the reward for Satan, and it's the reward for everyone that defies God. That reward is an eternal fire. And there are some people that try to explain that fire away. Billy Graham says that it's not a real fire, that it's separation from God. And he says, it's awful to be separated from God. And I agree with that. That's, that's awful to be separated from God. To be separated from God for eternity will be awful. But do you think that Satan cares about being separated from God? He doesn't want to be with God anyway. And what human being really cares about being separated from God? I mean, people live their lives apart from God. They don't give that a second thought. Hell is separation from God. But those who go there could only wish that that's all that it was. Hell is a fire. And I can't think of any other reason that God calls it fire here than it's fire. I mean, I don't know why he would say that unless it's fire. He says it's a lake of fire and brimstone. And as I said, we're going to talk about hell a whole lot more later, but we we really do need to know the truth of this place. And then there are others that are think they're a little bit more orthodox than to say that hell is not really a fire. They'll say, yes, it is fire, but God's not going to leave people there. It's possible to get out of hell. Or you're just burned up. It's immediately you're burned up and that's the end of it. But you've got huge problems with that because, number one, that doctrine calls God a liar. Je- calls Jesus a liar because he definitely taught against that. It also devalues the atonement of Christ. And maybe later, another time, I'll talk to you why it does that. But it devalues the atonement of Christ. Now, it's easy enough to see from this scripture that hell is not a flame out. It says, he'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Day and night is an expression that means without relief. It means continuously. And forever and ever means 
forever and ever. That, that one I think you get. That's the reward for wickedness. But then God gives us a little bit more information about his reward. And this last part is that Satan is back with his evil friends. Back with his evil friends. The beast, the antichrist, and that false prophet. Those two old compadres of Satan are there in this lake of fire. Now, they were thrown in there a thousand years before this. And you'll notice that they haven't burned up. They're still burning after a thousand years. But have you, ever, have you heard this one, though? Well, if I go to hell, I'll have plenty of friends there. What kind of friend would say to you, See you in hell, buddy. I hope you make it. I wouldn't be a friend to anybody if I said that. I'm not a friend to anybody unless I try to keep them out of hell. I'm going to keep everybody I know out of hell. But people think having friends in hell, that, that's a consolation. And I can assure you that Satan does not pull up a chair with his two old buddies there in hell and say, let's catch up on a few things. I mean, well, what's, what's been going on this last thousand years? Let's kind of get together and make some plans for what we're going to do for the next thousand years. See, there's some people who think that hell means nothing at all to Satan because they think that Satan's there anyway. Satan's the keeper of hell. Folks, Satan is not in hell. He never has been in hell. And he doesn't want to go there. He's smarter than a whole lot of people. I'll grant you that. He doesn't want to go to hell. And all of what we're talking about here, all of this fighting and all the wars and and all of this bringing people together against God's throne is because he's trying to stay out of hell. He doesn't want to be there. And so he's a whole lot smarter than people are. But it's not going to work because God lets him out of the abyss and then God gives him his reward. And when he does, we're finally done with the devil. Finally done with the devil. Unless you're going to the same place where he is. And then you can sit down and make friends and talk to your friend, the devil, if that's what you think that he is. Finally done with the devil. God's people will be done with him forever. I'll get, I'll get to this a couple weeks. But let me just say this preview of what's coming. Many people believe that what God does is he wipes the memory of all people that are believers so that we have no, not, no recollection, no knowledge of people that are in hell. So that when God turns the key, shuts the door, locks the gate, puts everybody there, they're there for all eternity and nobody cares. Nobody knows. They're out of mind, out of sight, out of mind, out of existence. That's an interesting theory, isn't it? That God would wipe the minds of people so that they would never think again about the awfulness of hell and the people that are there. Something to think about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the warnings that are given us here. We see what's going to happen to Satan. And and as we'll see as we come up on these next verses, that there is a judgment coming and that all of these people that have not believed are going to stand before you and they're going to receive their reward as well for everything that's been done in this life. We're all, they're all going to stand before you and be judged. Although we pray that people here, everyone here knows you as Savior so that they won't be at that judgment, but they'll be standing with God around the throne. Lord, bless us. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.